0: Well, today you can uh, open up your Bible to the book of Philippians because we're going to continue our study. In the book of Philippians, this whole uh, Bible study that Pastor Matthew has embarked on for the last several months is entitled, Joy for the Journey, Joy for the Journey, a study of the book of Philippians. And he has asked me specifically to cover one particular passage uh, in his absence that I'll be addressing in just a few moments. First of all, though, I want to find out how much we've learned, how much all of us have learned together from this study of the book of Philippians, what we've learned in this uh, uh, joy for the journey... So let's take a few minutes to review before I plug on ahead, all right? First of all, a couple of things just to remind you of. Number one, joy is not an expression of our feelings, but an expression of our faith. Now the reason for that is simple. Our feelings on any given day can be up or down, they can be all over the place. You may not feel very well today, as a matter of fact. Physically, I don't feel very well. My knee is killing me. I'm scheduled this Wednesday for knee surgery, and I just can't wait to get that over with because I've been in so much pain. But at any rate, you know what? The joy of the Lord has nothing to do with how you feel. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings may be deceiving. I put my trust... In the word of God, not else is worth believing. Martin Luther. So feelings, our faith, uh, uh, th- this joy of the Lord is based on faith, not feelings. Secondly, the joy of the Lord is not based on circumstances, but based on our relationship with Christ. Circumstances can be very Depressing. We live in an age right now for the last several months. Our world has been quite depressing. Circumstances have been about as bad uh, as I've seen it in my 70 plus years of life on planet earth. I mean, let's face it, folks, things are bad (laughs) as far as circumstances. But the joy of the Lord has nothing to do with the circumstances of our world has nothing to do with that. The joy of the Lord is simply that. The joy of the Lord, it is our relationship which no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what is devastating us like the coronavirus, I want to tell you Christ is the one permanent thing that you can count on for all eternity. He is always there. He'll always care for you. And we have a, a precious relationship with Jesus Christ, and nobody can take that away, no matter what our circumstances are. Our, you know, it, the joy of the Lord transcends anything that's here on this earth. It's It's a deep, abiding, permanent relationship, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not a human thing. It's a God thing. The joy that we're talking about is not an earthly joy. It is a divine joy, the joy of the Lord. Number three. Joy is not based on feelings, but on faith. It's not based on circumstances, but on a relationship. Number three, joy is not an emotional mood. Some of us may not be in a good mood today. Your wife has already told you that, right, guys? (laughs) You know, your mood, you have mood swings. A lot of people have quite dramatic mood swings uh, from day to day. It's not an emotional mood, but it is, listen carefully, a spiritual mindset. A spiritual mindset. Pastor Matthew taught us in the last week that he was here before he left, that it's all about the mind of Christ. As a matter of fact, the thing that you get the most out of the book of Philippians is this. The word joy or rejoice is used like 16 times, but also 16 times you have the word think, like think on these things, Philippians 4.8, or let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. See, it has a lot to do with how we think spiritually. Spiritually. Our mindset. And if we think scripturally, if we think biblically, we will know what it is to have the joy of the Lord. Well, the Philippian believers were exhorted by the Apostle Paul to rejoice in many things. They were exhorted to rejoice in their salvation. I mean, if there's nothing else you can rejoice in this morning, it's the fact that you're saved, your sins are forgiven, you have a home in heaven. And let me tell you, if you can't rejoice in that today, you're in bad shape, let me just say. But we we all should rejoice in our salvation. We have something that the world out there knows nothing about. The joy of salvation. Think of it. Where would we be this morning were it not for the knowledge of our saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? So they were rejoicing in their salvation. They were rejoicing in their service. They knew what it meant to serve the Lord. And all of us who serve the Lord have discovered something. There is a certain joy, a satisfaction, a blessing. There is a certain fulfillment that comes to our hearts and to our lives when we get our mind off of ourselves and we think about others and we live our lives to serve other people. That's what makes a good marriage is not focusing on you and what you want and what your desires are, but on, on others, on your spouse. And that's a, that theme is, is all through the book of Philippians. So they rejoiced in their salvation, in their service, and even in their suffering. Can you believe that? They were going through persecution Ever since the Apostle Paul had been there and founded the church, this church from its very beginning, from its very inception, had experienced persecution. Paul refers to that particularly in chapter 1 where he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. The, The matter of... Being able to rejoice, you say, how in the world can anybody rejoice in suffering? I mean, that doesn't even seem possible, to be able to rejoice in suffering. Ah, but here's the truth. The Apostle Paul exemplified what that looks like in real life. If you go back to Acts 16.25 and you discover what happened when Paul was at Philippi, how that he and Silas were put in prison for preaching the gospel, they were placed in the inner prison, which in today's terms would be like solitary confinement. They were placed in the inner prison They were seated on the floor, their backs against the wall, their feet were in stocks, which meant they couldn't even get up and move around. And in that condition that they were in, in that suffering for the cause of Christ, Acts 16.25 says this, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. This is Acts 16 25. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to the Lord, and the prisoners heard them. But what an impact that must have made! These prisoners that are, their feet are in stocks, they're in the inner prison, and at midnight, they're not in there complaining and saying life is unfair, people are unfair, the world is mean and cruel. No, they, they weren't bitter. They weren't complaining. They were rejoicing. Listen, they were rejoicing in the Lord. And so, now don't miss this. When Paul writes back to this church years later and says this, the theme verse of Philippians is 4, four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I want to tell you, that's not theoretical. That's not just some hypothetical, theoretical philosophy of life that Paul is espousing to these Philippians. This is how he lived. He lived this. Paul, I'm glad to say, practiced what he preached. When he was with them, he rejoiced at midnight in a prison, suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, with all authority, rejoice in the Lord Always. You mean even when we're going through suffering? You mean even when we're going through difficult times? You mean we can rejoice in the Lord even when coronavirus has swept the world? And I say, in the Lord we can rejoice in Him always. All the time. Because why? Joy is not based on feelings. It's based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. It sure is. What a testimony it is when the world is watching you and they can see the difference that is in your life because of Christ. And nowhere is your testimony more clearly evident than when you're going through trials. I mean, all of us can have a good testimony when life is going along real good. I mean, it's easy to praise God and and rejoice in the Lord when, when everything's going good. But when trials come into our life, when we go through great difficulties, I want to tell you, that is when our testimony for Christ really counts. That's when it counts. Years ago, when Nancy and I were living in western Maryland, we had all of our kids were little at that point. We had just had our sixth child, our baby, Daniel. He was 18 months old. He had just learned to talk and just learned to walk. You know, you usually start that about one years old. And so he was now toddling around. And uh, I did not, my wife was a registered nurse in those days, and so she was at the hospital. And she left me in charge of the kids. Wives, that's, that's your first mistake right there. (laughs) But I said, go ahead, I'll I'll watch the kids. And uh, so I did not know it, but as I was out there at the kitchen sink doing the dishes after supper, I did not know that our child number five, our second youngest, Laura, who was about five years old, had opened the door, the front door, and let Daniel out. I didn't know that. So there I am, being a good husband, washing the dishes, and all of a sudden I heard a sound that I will never, to the day I die, I will never forget this sound. Somebody was pounding, I mean pounding, on the front door. And I go to the door and I open it and they said, you better call an ambulance. Your little boy was just run over out in the street. So I called 911 and ordered the ambulance and I went out to the street and I bent over his little body and I could tell that he was still alive because he was like gasping for air and uh, blood was coming out of his mouth and the poor lady that had run over him she was about a hundred yards up the street she had gotten out of her car and she was just screaming in agonizing pain herself for what she had done. And uh, as I'm down there on the ground, bent over my little boy, the neighbors, all of the neighbors in the whole neighborhood started gathering around. These are the neighbors that knew that I was a pastor, but every time we would invite their kids to go to vacation Bible school or we would invite them to come to hear some evangelist preach at church, or whatever special occasion was going on at church that I thought might encourage the neighbors to come to church, we would try to reach out to them. And we'd never really, sad to say, been very successful in getting our neighbors interested in spiritual things. And I can remember distinctly As I'm down there on the ground holding the little head of my baby and all these neighbors are gathered around, I can remember this thought going through my mind. Today, right now, your testimony for Christ begins with these people. And how true that was. Actually, it was through that episode that we built, started building a relationship with some of those neighbors. And at least one of those families has not only been saved, but has gone on to be faithful in the local church that our oldest daughter now attends. And I want to tell you, when the Bible says rejoice in the Lord, it means, you know what that means? It means rejoice in the Lord. Amen? doesn't matter what circumstances are. You say, Pastor, if you know what I was going through, it's easy for you to say that, And I admit, it's easy to say it. But uh, as Christians, the thing that sets us apart from the rest of this world is that our relationship with Jesus Christ is so strong that no matter what happens in this life, we always have the Lord. I'm glad to tell you that after the medevac helicopter picked him up and flew him across to the local hospital, the same hospital that my wife was working at. And they come, a security guard comes and knocks on the door where Nancy was and says, you better come down to the emergency department. I remember what the pediatric doctor said after he examined after a couple hours of working they worked intently on him for several hours and the pediatrician came out and said to my wife and he was of a total different religion world religion he wasn't a Christian in any sense of the word and he said to my wife this is a miracle Your Lord loves you. Isn't that amazing? Your Lord must really love you. So you know what? We learn. We learn through experience this thing about rejoicing in the Lord. Now, before we come to today's text... I want to look at three other verses all through the Bible that talk about the joy of the Lord. Let's quickly look at this, and then we'll get into our text for today. First of all, Nehemiah 8.10, if you're taking notes, you can write these references down. That Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He was trying to encourage the workers up there in the city wall that were so exhausted, they were so tired, they were so bogged down, rebuilding the city walls and he encourages them, and he says, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Boy, I love that verse. Secondly, King David, at the lowest moment of his life, when he fell into sin, and he goes into that, that tremendous prayer of confession. It's Psalm fifty-one, twelve, And David makes an amazing statement. He says this, God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You know what that tells me? It tells me that even though you cannot, as a Christian, lose your salvation, if you've been saved, you're a child of God that is a permanent relationship. Though you can't lose your salvation, you can lose the joy of your salvation. And do you know how you can do that? It's by falling into sin, like David did. No wonder David said, God, give me my joy back. I don't have any joy in my life. And the reason he said that is just so obvious. When sin comes into the life of a Christian... It'll rob you of your joy. And if you're here in this audience this morning and you say, Pastor Seaford, something's really wrong with me. I just don't have that joy in my life. Then maybe a good place to begin is to say, is there some sin in my life? Because the one thing that'll rob you of the joy of the Lord is sin, harbored sin in your heart. No wonder David said, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And then one more verse. I love this verse, Jeremiah 15, 16, where Jeremiah says this, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah, think of it, he's called, by the way, the weeping prophet because he really suffered for the Lord. But isn't it amazing that even he, the weeping prophet, he knew something about where the source of joy comes from. He knew what it took in order to make sure that we have the joy of the Lord. And so where do you find that? You find that in the word of God. If you spend quality time, listen, every day in your devotional life in the word of God and in and focus on its precepts and its principles, if you're faithful in your devotional life and you hide God's word in your heart, I want to tell you, that's the source of joy. Thy words were found and I did eat them and they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So we need to take care that our own personal devotional life is all that it needs to be as Christians because that's the source of the joy of the Lord is the word of God. Oh, and by the way, A word of thanks to the many of you that this year are using my devotional guide that I just authored here in the last year uh, as your devotional guide. And I want to say thank you. Several of you have come up to me and say how much you are getting out of the devotional and I appreciate that. I'm glad it's being put to good use. And I thank God for that. If it encourages your life on a daily basis, if it gets you in the Bible day after day, in your own personal devotions, it accomplishes the whole purpose for which I wrote it. So thank you. Now we come to the passage for today. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. And uh, if you're physically able, I would encourage you to stand. The words will be on the screen But let me read it. You follow along as I read today's passage. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things that are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly." Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again you might rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Shall we pray? Lord, bless this Bible study and this passage now to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. May be seated. Well, we're done reviewing. Now we get into today's text. This passage was specifically assigned to me by Pastor Matthew. He said Pastor Seifred, would you take this portion of Philippians? I skipped over it. Now the reason he did, let me explain to you why he did that. I was a pastor for 45 years, and while the Bible exhorts all pastors to preach the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation and everything in it in between, there is one theme that is very difficult kind of touchy, kind of awkward for pastors to deal with. It's not money. Well, that too, but... It's the subject of what is the character of a good, godly pastor? What's the character qualities... Of a good pastor. You see, the reason it's so hard for a pastor to preach on that is it is a little awkward. You don't want to come across as sounding self-serving or boastful in any sense because you'd be preaching about yourself. And so Pastor Matthew, very wisely, instead of preaching about himself, he asked me to preach about him and I can do that (laughs) because I come here and I'm a deacon here. So I'm the perfect person to preach this passage to you today. And I fully understand why it was that he passed over this text and passed it on to me because I would do the same thing. What is the character, you say, what is the character of a real pastor what does it mean to have a pastors heart you know what's involved in that well several things first of all we look at this passage of Scripture and I notice three people there's three main characters Paul he was the veteran apostle with a pastor's heart. He just had to know how this church was doing. It's like he was thinking, I can't stand not knowing how these people, are they, how they're doing spiritually since I left them. So he is the apostle with a pastor's heart. Then there's Timothy, the associate pastor, who was like-minded He was just like the Apostle Paul because he cared about this church. And then there's Epaphroditus. Boy, what a name that is. What a Greek name that is. Epaphroditus. The name, by the way, means lovely or handsome. Good name for a pastor. Handsome, isn't it? Epaphroditus. But what a godly man he was. And as you just found out from this passage he almost died serving the Lord. He was so committed to the service of Christ, he uh, sacrificed even his health for the cause of Christ. Now, if you look at this passage, I've outlined it in these three ways. Number one, Pastoral concern. See, what makes a good pastor? I can tell you what makes a good pastor. A good pastor loves his flock. A good pastor is concerned about his people. He does more than just get up and preach. Preaching is important. But I want to tell you, a good pastor loves his people and is concerned about their every need. He's at their bedside when they're Sick, He grieves with the family when there's a loss in the family. He he just identifies with their hurts and their burdens and, and whatever the burden of the person is, that becomes, and I can say this as a pastor, that becomes the pastor's burden. He literally carries the burdens of the whole congregation. Why? Because that's what pastors do. They're concerned. Pastoral concern. Now, I see that in the word, the phrase that's used twice in our text. It's used of Paul. He says, because I want to know of your state. And then he talks in the next verse, verse 20, about Timothy. I'm sending Timothy I have nobody like Magna that he may uh, know what your state is because he cares about your state. You see, that's pastoral concern. Secondly, I see something else in this text. I call this pathetic conditions. That's verse 21 right in the middle of this wonderful description of how good these men were that were serving the Lord together, you have this kind of negative verse right stuck in the middle of it. For all seek their own, not the things that are of Christ Jesus. Paul here is contrasting the false prophets, the false ministers, the false teachers... With the good godly men who have a true heart for the Lord's work. And here's the big contrast. Those people, the people of the world, you know, they're just in it for themselves. Their whole motivation, and by the way, most of the world around us is like this. What's their main concern? It's themselves. What do I get out of this? Life is all about me, it's about my needs. It's about, you know, my uh, interests and so forth. And so the, Paul says, for all seek their own. What a good description that is of the world outside of biblical Christianity. They all seek their own, not the things that be of Christ. Boy, you know, if I was to write a verse above, as a title, above the world outside of these doors, I would, they all seek their own, not the things of the Lord. That's just so evident in our culture, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's true in a lot of marriages. Everybody's out for themselves. Kind of, you know, the philosophy, take care of yourself first. What makes a true minister of the gospel different, what makes all of us as Christians different, is that we don't live for ourselves. It's not about you as Rick Warren says in the first line of his book, it's not about you. It's about Christ. And it's about others. You don't exist for yourself. You exist for the needs of others. By the way, you're here in the latter part of Philippians 2. Go back to the early verses of Philippians 2 and look at verse 4. This chapter actually begins with this whole concept. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but on the interests of others. Another translation look not on your own things, but on the things of others. It's so, so vitally important that we be others minded. Matter of fact, someone has wonderfully taken the word joy and come up with this acrostic Jesus, others, and then guess who's last? You. Jesus, others, you. That's a good description of joy. And so we see this verse, for all seek their own things, not the things of Christ. And then finally, number three, Paul gets into describing these, I call them profitable companions. See, the ministry is a team. It is true here at Crosslink also. It's not just Pastor Matthew. There's an entire pastoral team of men that God has brought to this place. And Paul talks about these, quote, profitable companions. And might I just say that if you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to get this. I think that it's very important for us as Christians to make sure that we communicate, that we communicate to those on the pastoral staff of Crosslink Community Church, that we love them, that we pray for them, that we appreciate them, and that we just honor and esteem them for their work's sake, and we just wish them well. Amen? Yes, go ahead and clap. Clap for all of them. God has put together a tremendous team of men. I can say that having been a pastor and having had my own pastoral staff over the years... The thing that is such a blessing here at this church is the way God has brought these uniquely gifted men together to serve side by side. And I want to tell you, you folks don't know what a blessing it is to have these servants of God in your midst. Can I just say that? And so here's my practical application of this message today sometime over the course of the next couple of months, whenever you have good opportunity to do so, go up to them, each of them, and let them know. Say, you know what? I love you. I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you and I support you. And and God bless you and your family. I want to tell you, Take it from the heart of a pastor who has pastors deal with pressures and problems and situations that sometimes are just really hard to bear. And every once in a while, it's so encouraging for somebody to come up and say, Pastor, I love you. I'm praying for you. So you do that, and God will bless you for it. These profitable companions, three things about them. They were willing to be sent anywhere. We see that in verses 19 and 25. Timothy was sent. Epaphroditus was sent. These men displayed the attitude of the prophet Isaiah who said, here am I, send me. I love the story that Pastor Matthew tells about how God called him here to Crosslink. I could hear that story over and over. It shows that God was in it, that God called him. See, and he was willing to be sent wherever God called him to go that's so important I think of pastor's wives my wife is here this morning you know I think pastor's wives are sometimes the unsung heroes because their husband gets the call to go to a new ministry and they have to be obedient in the sense of you know just following their husband's leadership and uh, I think when we get to heaven God has a special reward for all pastor's wives can I just say that you talk about individuals who are willing to be sent anywhere that God send them, uh, how true that is, of both pastors and their wives. Number two, they were ready to serve anyone. Sometimes these men served Paul personally, their ministry was to, just to Paul, and sometimes they served entire congregations. Timothy was at Ephesus Ephesus for a while. He was at Philippi for a while. So they served both on a personal level and on a congregational level. And number three, they were ready to sacrifice anything. A man with a, a pastor's heart, listen, what is it to have a pastor's heart It's to be willing to sacrifice anything for the ministry. And Paul emphasizes how Epaphroditus almost died doing God's work. Now, how would Epaphroditus' presence be an encouragement to them when he showed up? Just walking in the door, he's going to get a round of applause because God had healed him miraculously from the point of death and God had saved his life and so just what God had done for him would be a great blessing and encouragement to the congregation. No wonder Paul sent Epaphroditus back to this church at Philippi because he knew that would be a great blessing to their lives. Here was a faithful servant who never quit. He never gave up. He just served the Lord. His health suffered for it, but he never quit. You know, the Christian life is compared in Hebrews 12 to a race. It's compared to a race. As a matter of fact, it says... Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and the picture language there is like the grandstands. The arena is filled with spectators, but do you know who those spectators are? They are the saints that have gone on ahead of us, the Old Testament saints, all of whom are listed in chapter 11, one after another, these great heroes of the faith And now he begins chapter 12 by saying, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Run the race that is set before you. The Christian life is not a sprint when i was in high school i was good at a hundred yard dash in those days they didn't do meters this shows how old i am it was in hundred yard dash i was good at short distances marathons not so great not so good at long distances and uh... so What's it take to run a marathon? It takes endurance. It takes a person who doesn't quit, who doesn't give up. And the good news is all around us, we have people encouraging us in our Christian life. You young people here today, and there's a bunch of you here, your parents are your biggest fans. They're cheering you on. Now, I know when you're a teenager, you kind of lose sight of that, but when you grow up, you'll realize, Yeah, they really were <laughs> cheering me on. I remember my dad when I played football in high school. Very first game my freshman year, very first play of the game, I, inter- I was playing a defensive back position. I intercepted a pass. I was, I'm running down the left sideline... And I might say that I had speed. I was fast, all right? I wish my leg was like those days. But, uh, you know, my dad, he's running down the sideline right beside me, step for step. Can you believe it? He's running right beside me. He's jumping over water buckets and getting the yard marker guys out of the way. And he's running beside me and he's saying, go, go, go. And I felt like looking over to him and saying, what do you think I'm doing? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. So, but he was cheering me on. Folks, Other Christians are cheering us on in our race. I want to close with a poem. I've always appreciated this because it captures the spirit of people who don't quit, they don't give up, they serve the Lord until they come to the finish line. Listen to this. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well, Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son, and each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew, and off they went, young hearts and hopes afire To win and be the hero here was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as they speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace, and amidst the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished then that he'd quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now, I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face, that steady look which said again, get up and win the race. So up he jumped and tried again, Ten yards behind the last. If I'm to win those yards, he thought, I've got to move real fast. Exerting everything he had, he regained eight or ten. But trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat, he lied there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone, a loser all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is no more than this. To rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more and with a new commit... He resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line first place head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you'd have thought he won that race to listen to that crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do too well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. Now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Dear Christian, don't quit. Don't give up. Be faithful running the race that is set before you all the way to the finish line. Finish the race that God is has given to you. Be like Epaphroditus who who exemplifies the trait of faithful service and not quitting. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much for speaking to our hearts today and giving us the example of these men, Paul's team of men, who faithfully serve together in ministry and become patterns for us to follow. I want to thank you here this morning that you have given to this local church a wonderful, faithful, godly team of men as spiritual leaders to lead us in our spiritual lives. And we thank you for that. Help us to be in prayer for them. Help us to esteem them highly